If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn over to Daniel, where we resume our study this morning. Today, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 4, finishing out this whole sequence of Nebuchadnezzar and his dream and the interpretation of it and the ultimately what became of it. Of course, we've taken our time to get through here. There's a lot of detail here that, that bears honing in on. And as we have continued to make our way through these narratives of Daniel, we continue to see that as was true in the book of Genesis and Exodus, as God is proclaiming himself the creator of all and so sustainer of all. Uh, and in the Exodus, God is proclaiming himself better than the gods of Egypt. Yahweh is more powerful than the ancient gods. And then, of course, the laying out of the law. And then in the historical books, seeing God's power manifest in different ways and through different ages, where, see, God is better than the Philistine army. God is better than a god of Molech or Dagon or Asherah or Baal. All these things that continue on through the, what's called the history books. And in the prophetic literature, we see that God is judge of the nations. And so we find ourselves in Daniel. What is he doing? He's beating the same drum that Moses was beating in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Samuel and so many of the other biblical writers who wrote to impress upon the nations who is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Who is the true and living God? Yahweh is the true and living God. And so if it ever feels repetitive to you, it's because it is very much so. When you read through Scripture, it is repetitive, and it's, there's a reason for it. Because how often did the Israelites forget the lordship of Yahweh? More times than we can count. And before we wag our fingers at them and say, well, if I saw God split the sea, I would have always been faithful. And it's, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because you're a human like them. You too forget that God is Lord, that Yahweh is king. Which is why God set up a Sabbath day of worship and rest for us to come and again and again and again be renewed with his people and our understanding of who he is and what he does and why he does it or how he does it. So this morning, Daniel has laid everything out to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has heard the truth from Daniel. He's heard the interpretation for Daniel. Daniel gave him an opportunity to perhaps turn from the road that he was on. If you will repent, perhaps God will extend your prosperity, give you an opportunity to not have to walk through this fire, this furnace, this crucible you're about to be in. And we find ourselves at how Nebuchadnezzar took that counsel or didn't take that counsel. So that's where we are this morning. This morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. So read now with me, if you will. Beloved of God, this is God's perfect and fallible word. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by, by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty... While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, 
and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, we come to this word and we, like Nebuchadnezzar, should be humbled by it. We should be humbled by the reality that you are sovereign, that you are king, and that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. And so, God, we come to you this morning as we submit ourselves to you and to this word. Open up our minds and hearts, I pray. Use it to dig deeply into the very core of who we are that we might be transformed. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. During the Napoleonic reign in France, as we know, Napoleon was a conqueror. He was, he amassed an army and he conquered large swaths of land in Europe. And one, one Easter Sunday morning, he brought his army to Feldkirch, Austria, to besiege the town and take it over in his amass for land and power. He brought his army up. They began to surround the town. And the town, being small and very weak, were very afraid, as you'd imagine. The emperor, Napoleon, is coming to conquer us. What will we do? So they met, the town council met in the church. It happened to be Easter Sunday morning. And as they were recognizing that they're too weak, do we just surrender? Or do we try to feign like we have more power than we do? The pastor said to his uh, town folk, hey, it's Easter Sunday. We have, we're too weak. We have no way to repel this army. I propose that we pray for the wisdom of God and we worship Jesus on this Resurrection Sunday. So the town said, okay, you know, we have no other options really. So the, someone went to the church and they rang the bell to call the townspeople for worship. And the townspeople came swarming out of their houses ready to meet for worship. And one of the sentries who'd been posted to just watch the French army saw them breaking camp and leaving. Turns out, the French army, Napoleon, not want to lose any casualties there, casualties there, thought that the Austrian army had marched through the night and the sounding bell was them raising the defense in the town, getting ready to repel the French army. And so the French left and Feldkirk was spared. What does this have to do with Daniel? Not very much. But I can tell you it's a historical example of what we would call the providence of God, a good and gracious providence of God where something divine happened and, inter and interfered with what people thought and spared a town. I believe through their prayers and through their worship, God acted on their behalf. Providence, when we think about providence, we think about this idea that it's God working behind the scene, and it is. It is that. If Daniel is about faithfulness and Daniel is about lordship, it is also a study on the providence of God, of God's works in history. When we think about providence, providence is that God controls the events of life. 
It means that there are specific aspects of God's will known only to him worked out in human history. So when we, when we look at it, it's a powerful attribute of God that God not only knows what's happening, he's ordering it. He's ordaining it. He's bringing it to pass. When we think about providence and sovereignty, they work together to proclaim of something very specific. Providence and sovereignty work together to proclaim the omnipotence of God. And so when we see these things at work, we understand that we serve a God of power, not of weakness. That we serve a God who designs things, doesn't just let them happen haphazardly. That we serve a God that even in the darkest moments is in control. And beloved, that's the God we need. We don't need the God that we often try to make up in modern culture, the God who is, just wants to give you the ishy-gwishy hug and, and all that. I mean, I, God loves his people, but we need a God who is in control because you and I control zero, nothing. We can't control what's going to happen to us when we walk out our door. We can't control what's going to happen to us when we make it to our vocations. We can't control anything. What is it that we need? We need a God who can control these things and who works not only for his glory, but for our good. And so his control is not a Napoleonic control, not a dictatorial control. His control is a loving control. And that's what we need. This is the second time in this book God has given Nebuchadnezzar a glimpse into, a, into the future by showing his will in a dream. God demonstrated the power of providence by showing here that he orders the universe. It's going to happen the way I say it's going to happen. When we consider providence, though, I don't want to, I don't want to surpass this. We have to consider negative things happen in our world. Negative things have happened to you. Things where I'm sure you have looked up to the heavens and said, Why? Why is this happening? I didn't want this. This doesn't feel like this is for my good. Why would you let this happen? Why does this thing abound? Why does that abound? You know what? I'll tell you like I've told you before. That question isn't answerable. In other words, there is not a theologian alive who can answer that question for you. We don't know. Here's what we do know. I do know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 told something that has always stuck with me from the very first time I ever heard it. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father? Beloved, I don't know why certain things happen in our world. There are certain things I have questions on myself, but here's what I do know. God is in control, and if God controls the flight path of a sparrow all the way to when it falls to the ground, he is in control of our lives. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and the beautiful. So we have hope that even in the valley of shadow, we have a good God and good Father who is leading us. With those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want first to see, and it's this, that God's providence is an invincible power that God's providence is an, an invincible power. Old Testament theologian, one that both Richard and I are very familiar with, Richard even more so, is Dr. Walt Kaiser. He tells a story of Louis XIV, who um, right before he died, he was, oh, of course, his funeral service was going to be held in the cathedral at Notre Dame, in 
I'm, I know I'm not saying this right, Rachel, but I'm just going to say Notre Dame. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's having his funeral at that famous French cathedral that we all know the name of. And, and Louis, the, the king had requested one thing. He wanted it to be completely lights out. Lights out. Want there not to be a candle lit except for one candle. He wanted one candle placed on his coffin to remind the French people that he was a shining light and that he was of his importance. The pastor, the clergyman who officiated his service as he got up to go to the pulpit, he walked by the coffin and he snuffed that candle out and he ascended to the pulpit and his opening words were, only God is great, only God is great. He was acknowledging something. Men and women, you see, us humans, we are here today and gone tomorrow. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Our life is a vapor. God is the one who is eternal. God is the one who orders all things. God is the one to be magnified and glorified. When we're looking at Daniel, we keep coming back around to this little phrase that just stays in my head about the unbeatable sovereignty of God. No matter how much people press back against God and his power and his truth, his sovereignty, his providence, his truth are unbeatable, and they remain victorious. And that's exactly what we see here this morning. When we look at this particular chapter and this particular... Um, when we look at this particular story here, it reminds me that all of life on this earth is subject to the will of God. All of life on this earth is subject to the will of God. And here's the thing. How do we know this? I could give you a litany of scriptures. The one that most readily stands out in my mind is Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not commanded it? Now let that sink in. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not commanded it. Those are bold words. What does it remind us? That we are not dust in the wind like Kansas said. We are on a trajectory. We are on a pathway. We are uh, living according to something larger than ourselves. It is the will of God. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? When we look at the present paragraph we're studying, we can break this up into two primary sections. Verses 28 to 33 are the, just the announcement of the judgment falling, and so that's where we are. Literally in verse 28, it reads, all this reached King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar now is about to feel the truth of God in a very real way. He couldn't escape God's word. All the money, all the status, all the power in the world was not going to rescue him from God's determined plan for him. No matter what he did, he was caught. And so that's where we are. All this reached the king. But in this, in this, we see a mercy. Again, we talked about this last week. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. I'm going to stop right there because the most important phrase there was at the end of 12 months, after 12 months. What does that tell you? God gave him a year. Daniel had counseled him earlier in verse 27, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. In other words, Daniel told him, change your ways. Turn from this lifestyle, and then we read, God gave him a year to do it. A year's a long time. A year is plenty of time. 
And so when we're looking at this judgment, we understand that, that he had time to repent. But we need to remember that God says this elsewhere in Scripture, that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It's not as if God is licking his chops, just can't wait to judge somebody. God is a merciful God. That he does, that he does judge is also a mercy. What is he doing in judgment? He's cleansing wickedness. And the most merciful thing he could do for a righteous folk on the earth is cleanse wickedness. But here, he gave Nebuchadnezzar time to repent. He gave Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to turn from his wicked ways. But we see Nebuchadnezzar's heart on display here, and it's unmistakable when he says, and the king answered and said, it's not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. <laughs> Pure arrogance. What is he telling you? What is he saying? I'm responsible for Babylon. You look at what you see here, I did this. I built those hanging gardens. I put fortifications around the city. I put all the gardens in. I put the royal palace here. I am the one who did this. I built, did you see that? I built my strength, my honor. What is that? Well, A, it's arrogance to certainly say that. What else is it? I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's a picture of self-worship. He is glorifying himself here. He's worshiping himself. He's putting himself in the throne. He's putting himself on display. He's giving glory to self, not glory to God. What feeds this type of heart in a person? I'll tell you what does. Simply and plain, plainly, idolatry does. Because you see, what is idolatry getting us to do? It's getting us to focus off of truth and focus on to self. And the idol is telling you, well, you need this and you need that and you can do this yourself. I've told you before that Satanism simply takes the Bible and turns it on its head by saying, I do things for my glory. That's exactly what idolatry wants you to do. The idol is not so much enticing you to worship it as it's enticing you to worship you. And when we go down that road, as Nebuchadnezzar clearly had, the only fruit of that is I'm going to give glory to myself, I'm going to be worried about myself, and I'm not worried about God, and I'm, I'm not worried about sin. Sin is my right because this is about me. That's exactly what sin and idolatry do to us. And there are many examples of this we see played out in our world you look at a greedy man, and I'll show you an idolatrous man, someone who lives their life thinking, it's all for me, I'm taking it for myself, me, me, me. When you look at the prosperity gospel, that is one of the things that just lights a fire in my soul, is it takes the word gospel, and it uses it, and it reframes it to mean, I get everything I want all the time, and if I don't, then that's not a good God from the Bible. Beloved, that's idolatry. It's sick. It's wrong. Nebuchadnezzar could have easily fit in at some of the prosperity preaching churches in America because he gave glory to self. He sought himself. He lived for self. But here's the beauty and power of the living God, and this is not a small detail in this, in this paragraph. While the words were still in the king's mouth, in other words, while he was still speaking, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Very familiar. <clears throat> Saul heard the same thing when he had sinned against the Lord. But Nebuchadnezzar hears this voice. Before 
the words, or while the words were still in his mouth, you have, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So when we look at this, that we hear a voice from heaven fell and came down, we take from this, Nebuchadnezzar is guilty, guilty of, he's guilty before the Lord. The voice of heaven speaks to him and says, the kingdom has departed from you. And so as we see, and he lays this out, he lays this out in these couple of verses, we can see some things that are important. For one, we see Nebuchadnezzar, at least temporarily, has lost his kingdom. This man of strength, this man who just said, by my strength, I built for my honor, this man of strength, this man of power, is now rendered incapable of leaving. He's driven away. He can't lead. He can't build glory for himself. He can't now look at himself in this time period and and, and glorify himself because he's rendered incapable. He doesn't have the capacity to do what he once did. So he lost his kingdom. He lost his dignity. This man, is made, this man of honor, as he spoke of himself, is made to live like an animal. Is made to live like an animal. And the, he's bestial in image. And it's raw. Allow your mind to go. It's raw to think of what he was reduced to. And, and graphic, we would say, graphic. Probably even more graphic than Daniel lays out. Why is this one important? Let me tell you something. It's important because now the image of God is blurred in him. Why? Well, he's rejected the image of God. He's treated people as not in the image of God. And so what happens to him? The image of God is blurred in him. This story is impressed upon me because it made a deep impact in my life. When I was in seminary, Dr. Knox Chamlin was teaching Johannine literature. That's the literature of John. And he, we were talking about the image of God in people. And he was talking about different American curse words that were heavy words. And, but he said, he looked at us from behind the podium and he said, he said, gentlemen, do you know the worst thing you can call a human being is a dog? And we were kind of taken aback. We thought he meant something else. He said, because to look at a human being made in the image of God and compare them to a dog is to curse the image of God in another person. That made a lasting impression on me. I'd never thought about certain curse words that when we compare people to dogs and think, that is right, you are robbing them of the image of God. I mean, not, not in the literal sense, but you're acting and speaking as if the image of God is not alive in this person. So I would challenge you to think about how important that is, that, the, that when Nebuchadnezzar, when he becomes an almost dog-like or oxen-like, the image of God is blurred in him. That's a serious judgment from God. So he lost his kingdom, he lost his dignity, but he lost his power. He's helpless. He's helpless. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He's helpless. So he has no, he has no power. He has to acknowledge the power of the Lord. And what do we learn here? 
that Yahweh's power and providence, or, or uh, sovereignty and providence are unmatched, that it is the Lord establishes. Isn't that what he says? The Lord, and he gives it to whom he will. Well, that's what he's saying. Until you acknowledge that it is the Lord, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius, not anybody else. It is the Lord who establishes, and until you acknowledge that, you are lost. Beloved, when we think about the providence and sovereignty of God, I know I've said this before, but it can become almost kind of like, well, yeah, yeah, we get that. And, and I don't know that we really do. I don't, can you wrap your mind around a God who is completely just and right and sovereign, who knows all things, sees all things, brings things to pass, and then to try to work that out in your mind? But that is true. That is God. When we think about the Lord, it is the Lord who gives our daily bread. When we think about the Lord, it is the Lord who gives various gifts. It is the Lord who blesses and nourishes. Beloved, we can't take credit for the gifts of God. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar needed this reminder, but so do we. Humility is more than just self, being self-deprecating. I love the way C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, humility is not thinking poorly of yourself, it's generally not thinking of yourself. In other words, consider others better than yourself, as Paul told the Philippian church. We all need the humility to remember, no matter how I think it should be or what I think should happen, God is in control. And if I have blessings in my life, they are a good gift from God, not the work of my hands. So then we... We read of his transformation immediately. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, just like God promised. He did eat grass like an ox, just like God said he would. His body was wet with dew of heaven, just like God said it would be, until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This is a scary sight if you think about it. So he's completely transformed We've already talked about sin makes us bestial. We knew what was in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar because of the way his life was. So now what he was on the inside is reflected on the outside. We're seeing him as he is. In fact, all those who witnessed it, this is, this is kind of would be more application from the text, but all those who witnessed it got a glimpse of what happens when God allows you to be seen on the outside as you are on the inside. Why does Jesus deal so much with the heart? Because the heart is the thing that transforms and then works its way out. We live what's in our hearts. And so Nebuchadnezzar now living like an animal is more congruent with his heart. Who, what is the main enemy he had to overcome? What is the main enemy he had, to, he had to conquer here? It was himself. He had to be conquered Beloved, when it comes to sin and idolatry, self is always the main obstacle. That's, the all, that's, that's always the thing that has to be overcome because I'm telling you, whatever we replace God with in our heart in, a, in an idol, it's really our self because we're the ones who stand to gain. So when we are dealing with sin in the flesh, the primary obstacle we have to overcome is what's in us. Of course, this is very graphic, He's stricken, and then we get an immediate transition. So verse 34 to 37, as I said, are, are the praise where he renders praise. 
And I love how it just immediately transitions at the end of, at the, end of the days. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I'm going to stop right there. Because what, what, what has happened now is Nebuchadnezzar is seeing and acknowledging truth. And here's where, again, at the end of days, what were the seven periods of time? Were they seven years? Were they seven seasons? Were they seven months? Were they seven days? It doesn't matter. And that's not the point. But at the end of days, what is that trying to tell you? What is that trying to tell you and me? That there's an appointed time here. At the end of days, there was a, a set amount of days that had been appointed. And at the end of those days, God's appointed time, that God had control of this situation, that God was ordering this to happen the way it needed to happen. At the end of that time, when God, decide, when God had decreed, this is now done, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the truth. By lifting my eyes to heaven kind of is a, is a roundabout way of looking up to God, of acknowledging God. And what's happening as he's acknowledging God is he's beginning to be restored. But here's the thing, and I've, and I've made this point before, it bears repeating. Nebuchadnezzar, we, we dare not make light of the concept of truth. We're increasingly becoming aware of what happens when you abandon the notion of objective truth or even biological truth. We're seeing it happen in our midst. Truth is important. Truth is real. And what does it do here Nebuchadnezzar, when exposed to truth, when he sees things as they are, that's what an, an, an English poet once said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, we see things as they are. He sees things as they are, and he begins to worship, to praise. That's exactly what it's meant to do. Seeing truth should lead to praise. It's acknowledging the greatness of God. He's being exposed to this thing that now, for a time, some scales have been pulled off his eyes and he sees, and he has but one response, and it's to praise, it's to acknowledge, it's to, in some sense, worship. And this is where I'll say, if, we, if we're going to talk about a worship informed by truth and a worship expressing truth back to God, Worship can't merely be emotional. It can't merely be emotional. But let me say this. Emotion should be involved. We don't want to be stiff. We don't want to be accused of being, you know, whitewashed tombs who show no emotion, who have no joy, who aren't glad of, of, of face and heart to be gathered. But, beloved, if it's not based on truth, it's worthless. It has, worship has to be in response to truth. Any other worship is false. So when we think about worship, what is worship? Yes, it's got some emotion in it, but it's not purely emotional. Worship is an intentional, uh, intentional response to the truth of who God is, an intentional, thought-out response to the truth of who God is. And so we don't just sing the songs that Steve leads us in. We are acknowledging, we're seeing truth back to God based in Scripture because we're informed by truth that these things are true and so we want to respond truthfully. And I love this, that Nebuchadnezzar is able for a moment of, let's just call this sanity. So when we see when he is sane, truly sane, what does he do? He acknowledges who God is. When he truly understands his own humanity, he begins to acknowledge who God is. 
he continues, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All the earth is the Lord's. He's acknowledging this. This is where we can amen him. Amen. Amen, Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. This is right. All truth is God's truth. What he's saying is true. All the earth is the Lord's, including all the powerful countries. And so when we, we take, what do we take away from this? It's God is the majestic one. God is the sovereign one. God is the righteous one. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not you, not me, not anybody else, but God is the one who is these things. God is the one who embodies these things. And, and when we look at this, this, whole, this whole narrative in chapter 4, what is God telling us? Very simply, God says, I can humble the exalted and I can exalt the humbled. I can put them down and I can raise them up because I am Yahweh. And by the power of my will, I do these things. What else do we see in here? That the Lord's will, it has no rivals. No, it has no rivals because no one is equal to Yahweh. There are people who have evil intentions and there are people who will harm us. In fact, some of us may have already been harmed in our life. And we look at that and we ask ourselves, does that compete with the Lord's will? No. Again, why would we have to walk through those valleys? I've had to walk through some. I don't understand why. But now I can look back and see God's hand in my life preparing me, getting me ready. Beloved, I, I hope that in your dark hours, that one day you'll be able to look back and see, well, I was in a valley of shadow. I was in pain. It was hard. I didn't love it. But I wasn't alone. God was with me. God sent some encouraging times for me. God sent some sustenance for me that helped me make it through. Because trauma doesn't have to win. Trauma is trauma, and it's always going to be with us. You're never going to forget deeply painful moments. But the point is not to forget them. The point is to be reminded that those things have no sway on your soul. God's will and power and providence does. I don't speak lightly of pain because pain is real. But you know what is even more real than the pain is the God who says, trust me, I will be with you. All the details of our lives are written by God before a grain of sand was made. Ephesians chapter 1. Read those first 14 verses sometime and be reminded of the providential sovereignty and beauty of God that all the details of our lives were written before a grain of sand. It's troubling. It's comforting. But the reality is, is that all our lives pass through the hand of God. And it's troubling and it's comforting. But we serve a God who is able. We serve a God who loves us. This, the last two verses of this paragraph, of this whole chapter, really, they're kind of looking at the mercy of God and the restoration. What do we, what do we gain from this? Well, the Lord took, and then the Lord restored. If you want to remember about the Lord takes and the Lord restores, go back and reread Job sometime. I've been rereading it in the mornings, and it is hard. It is a hard book. The overarching message is like one of the songs, Blessed Be Your Name, that we sing, He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. But what do our hearts do? 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. We, Nebuchadnezzar was, you are, everybody will be until Jesus comes back and then even beyond in eternity when we celebrate with, with, with Yahweh and his son Jesus forever. We are completely dependent on the Lord. Completely dependent on the Lord. When this pagan king speaks, it is a miracle of God. He speaks truth. He speaks the truth of God. He speaks the truth of God's power. And so we ask ourselves, who is the one who can move or enliven a dead heart? Yahweh. Who is the one who clears away sin and the insanity of sin? Yahweh. If you're in Christ this morning, he did it for you. He did it for me. Who is the one who conquers pride? Yahweh. That's what he says in verse 37. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How does he know? He's like, because he just did it to me. Yahweh is everything Nebuchadnezzar is not. The, the question we constantly want to ask, is this a genuine confession? Who can say? Who can say? I don't know. That's not the point anyway. That's not the point of this. The point is, is that Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns and rules, and we are subject to him. Beloved of God, it is, it is God's will that rules the earth. There is no such thing as luck, except in football. There is no such thing as happenstance or coincidence, as much as we would wish it was. We, we, I even use that language sometimes. It seemed co coincidental or whatever. As we read earlier, what is the catechism, the shorter catechism, how is it explained? It states it this way, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. This is sobering. That's sobering. That's a sobering truth. It's also a mysterious truth. It's hard to wrap our mind around that. But some of the scriptures are, are, is really quite simple. God is in complete control, and we can trust him. And since God is just, what he does is right. And since it is right, it is grounded in truth. And truth always leads us back to the worship and love of God. Indeed, it must. It has to. And may it forever. And may it when times are hard. May it when we find ourselves in grief. And may it when we find ourselves in joy. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word the dream, oh, your sovereignty, your providence. God, we confess we have to acknowledge truth even in the face of mystery, and some things are mysterious. We don't know why you do certain things or don't do certain things. We don't know why our paths have taken the way that they have in certain areas. We don't know why things happen the way that they do or don't, but we acknowledge that your, your word tells us that you are sovereign, that you are providential, that you are in control, and we acknowledge that. Oh, God, forgive us that we often kick against the goads of that. Well, if you were good, you would do this. Or if you really cared about me, you would do this or would have kept me from that. Father, may we be quick to acknowledge that so often our poor decisions and foolishness put us in the situations that we're in. And then when that doesn't happen, Father, help us to humbly accept your love even when we don't understand. We yield to you in all things. Help us to live pure, right, and true before you. Mr. Christ, we pray. Amen.